Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 23, 2 Samuel chapters 14 and 15. Last week we left off with the wise woman of Tekoa standing before King David telling him a a fabricated story about her supposed plight of being a widow with only one remaining son but his life was in jeopardy. The problem was that this son had killed her other son in an act of murder and now the family's Goel Hadam, Blood Avenger, was intent on taking justice upon that surviving son by executing him. This, according to the widow, would not only make her destitute, but it would also deprive her deceased husband of having his life essence continue on in his offspring, this being the rather standard belief of that era, even for Hebrews. King David's top military commander, Yoav, had asked the woman to approach the king, even giving her the words she was to say. And David, thinking that what was laid before him was a real case, made a decision. And then when pressed by the woman, also made a vow in Yehovah's name that the son who had committed the murder is to be pardoned so that the woman and her deceased husband's spiritual afterlife will not suffer from their son's rash act. Now, however merciful David's decision might have seemed, and was probably a popular one, in fact, despite what the rabbis say, it was entirely wrong-minded. It was based on nothing but a humanistic philosophy. Now, I've spoken to you before about the rabbinical principle of Karl Vomer, which is a brilliant theological and practical tool used mostly to choose between the lesser of two evils. And the principle of of, of light versus heavy says that when we're confronted by a situation whereby two commandments of God both apply and yet they conflict with one another in application to this particular case. And thus, no matter what we choose, one of the commandments is necessarily going to be violated. Then we are to weigh the matter carefully and select and act upon the commandment that carries the heavier weight, the one that does the most good and the least harm. So is that what David is doing here? Is he weighing the matter and choosing one commandment over another? Life over death. Is he choosing mercy over punishment for the good of the widow? Yes, I think so, but he's doing it wrongly. In fact, the rabbis who worked so diligently to find David faultless on every matter couldn't themselves turn to call Vomer to validate their position that David was right to pardon this, this murderer because they too would have had to find David guilty in such a case. See, the Torah simply doesn't allow pardon for intentional murder. It doesn't allow for any kind of Levitical atonement for homicide 
that can reconcile the sinner in God's eyes. Thus they say that because this killing occurred in the field with no witnesses, and since that meant there was no one to warn the killer that to kill his brother was a sin, effectively no sin had been committed. Thus for David to prohibit the blood avenger from executing the murderer was the righteous and correct thing to do. In reality, however, all David is doing is using his own human sense of mercy and justice and in so doing, contravening God's well-defined and codified sense of mercy and justice as found in the law. Over and over the Torah commands the death penalty for certain terrible sins that are abominable to Yehovah and especially dangerous for the kingdom community. And the stated reason for executing such criminals is usually so that wickedness will be purged from the assembly of God's people. And that concept of purging wickedness is intended on two levels, the earthly and the spiritual. Now from the earthly standpoint, the execution of the criminal is a warning to others not to do the same. And it also eliminates that person who is obviously predisposed to commit such a wicked act and keeps them from injuring yet another innocent person. Now from God's standpoint, the taking of the life of the guilty saves the lives of the innocent. Thus it is really a matter of preserving life. And finally, it is justice. And justice is at the center of the Lord's dealing with mankind. Now from a spiritual standpoint, the only means of atonement for murder is the blood, the life of the criminal. Thus when the divine commandment to take the life of the criminal is not followed, the curse of God's law hangs over the community who refuse to obey Him. And therefore, wickedness remains embedded within the community. Now we see the practical results of David's foolish decisions regarding the abandonment of justice for his family and when it brings a personal or political benefit in these many stories of the latter days of David in Second Samuel and then of his descendants in Kings and Chronicles. And those results were attempted coups, murder, rape, incest, violence, utter disregard for the needs of the people of Israel. We also see all around us the practical results of modern society refusing to obey God's required punishments for sin. Christianity has overridden God's Torah justice, declaring it abolished, and replaced it with a man-made doctrine of love covers a multitude of sins. And the secular world has overridden God's Torah justice with a politically correct doctrine of 
endless mercy and rehabilitation for the criminal. And of course, the outcome is predictable with overflowing jails, ever-increasing rates of violent crime, an amoral society, the disintegration of the family unit. We've even had to invent a term for those people who just live to do wrong. Career criminals. I don't think there were any career criminals in the Bible days. These are people upon whom our combination of misapplied and misguided Christian and secular justice keeps finding reasons to pardon and show mercy for evil. Thus, career criminals are released right back into the community to harm the innocent again and again. And this strange mindset says that it's for the sake of Christian forgiveness and enlightened intellectualism. That it is right that the entire community should suffer and have to live in fear of those known evil people rather than simply following, following God's prescription to obey Him and execute those dangerous criminals and thus purge wickedness from our society. Well, King David's merciful decision on behalf of the widow became a snare for him. The instant he declared it as a royal decree and backed it up with an with a irrevocable sworn oath to Jehovah, the woman springs the trap by asking then, why doesn't he apply this same rationale to the situation concerning his son Abishalom. In 2 Samuel, verse, 2 Samuel 14, verse 13, the woman asks David, Why is it then that you have produced a situation exactly like this against God's people? By saying what you have said, the king has virtually incriminated himself in that the king does not bring home again the son he banished. In other words, since you promised to guarantee the safety of my son who murdered his brother, effectively pardoning him, and you did it for the sake of but one widow and her deceased husband, it follows from your own judgment that your son Avshalom should also be pardoned. And this is because it's better for the whole community of Israel that he be forgiven and brought home rather than punished according to the law. And by the way, King, don't try to reverse course and say that what you decreed to me was a mistake because that would be hypocritical and unjust. But in verse 14, the woman continues the argument by saying that death is inevitable and irreversible, so there was no need for David to enact judgment upon his own son, something he would later regret. Her argument is one of humanitarianism. Men should never take life. Rather, it's our human job to resist the urge for retribution and so preserve life. This is the argument that the Enlightenment philosophers would come to embrace because it runs completely counter to Holy Scriptures. 
It's one that so many Christians embrace because on the surface it sounds so good and so right to us. But in fact, we have a God-commanded duty to preserve innocent life by eliminating guilty criminals who take life and who infect our society with evil that causes broken relationships with God and leads to earthly misery and eternal death. The rabbis, despite their many erroneous conclusions concerning David in this story, have done an excellent job in dissecting the heart of this woman's argument on behalf of Absalom. And they say her argument consists of four points. First, we shall all die. That is, Amnon was eventually going to die, no matter what, so all Absalom did in having him killed was to hasten the inevitable. That was one of her arguments. Second, Amnon's lost life is like water flowing onto the ground that can't be gathered back up again. Following the Torah commandment to execute Avshalom won't bring back Amnon because that's impossible. So to do so is pointless and counterproductive and it just dismisses yet another life. Third point, God spares no one. It's okay for David to spare Avshalom now because in God's time and in his own way, the Lord will deal with Avshalom. So David doesn't have to. The Lord will eventually exact his own justice in this life or the next one. It's not necessary for David to have to do it for him. And his fourth argu- her fourth argument is, God wishes that no one is banished from him. That is, his will is that all people, even those who hate him or trespass against him, would someday be a part of the world to come. So David should be an example of this and welcome of Shalom back to God's kingdom. Now I suspect that some of you are hearing a logic pattern, if not a doctrine, in this wise woman's soliloquy that we've heard priests and pastors and politicians use ad infinitum and that we've probably quoted to one another. And I hope that with what you've learned from studying the Torah and actually seeing what God says about justice and now when it's laid out before you in the context of this hard-hitting story that you're able to see that while this way of thinking sounds really good and that there are nuggets of truth buried in it. In fact, such an overall philosophy is entirely humanistic in its source. And as such, it violates the very core of God's justice system. And the repercussions of us, whether God's worshippers or pagans, having greater regard for our own emotions and intellect then for God's divine commandments and principles are evident in the Bible stories of old and in the condition of our present world. 
And beginning in verse 15, so that she might cover all of her bases, the woman starts to backtrack a little bit by explaining why she would be so presumptuous as to approach the king in this devious way. She says she was coerced. But just to be sure that she doesn't get into trouble, she starts to slather the the king in flattery. You are like an angel from God in discerning good from bad, she tells the king. Actually, the English word angel here is a little bit off track. The Hebrew is malach. It means messenger. And while at times it's appropriate to translate malach to the word angel, it's where there's a specific reference to a spiritual being. But here the better meaning is simply the more general word messenger. That is, David is an earthly messenger from God like a prophet. Not that he's like a divine spiritual being. Well, by now it's become obvious to this experienced politician, King David, that he's been had. This was all a setup. But by whom? The king surmises that it was Joab. And he insists that this woman verify if that's the case. Well, we discussed last week that someone had to arrange for David to meet this woman. Israel's population at this time was probably in the neighborhood of 5 million people. So a commoner couldn't just show up at the palace and knock on David's door. Only an insider could arrange a meeting, and without doubt, that insider was Joab. And since Joab had arranged for the meeting, it was now clear that Joab had orchestrated this entire farce to achieve some end. Besides, what would a random woman from a small village know about the inner workings of David's family? Why would she speak to the defense of someone she didn't even know? Absalom. The woman congratulates King David for being so insightful as to discern that indeed it was Joab. The king calls for Joab. He tells him that he's decided to call for Absalom to come back to Jerusalem and Joab reacts in typical Middle Eastern a typical Middle Eastern show of humility. The king was doing this grudgingly and no doubt because he realized that his verdict in favor of the widow's son and David's vow made in the name of God had boxed him in. But David must also be asking himself a very troubling question. Why is Joab so invested in bringing Absalom home? There's no doubt in my mind that David suspected that Joab was at least tacitly part of the popular movement to escalate Avishalom's influence if not actually make him the new king. However, even though David was going to allow Absalom to return without prosecution for Amnon's murder, there was going to be a consequence. Absalom would not be able to reside in David's palace. And he would not be allowed in David's presence. 
the external exile within, but David was in no ways ready to rehabilitate Absalom. So three years after Amnon's demise and Absalom's flight to Geshur, he returns through the back door to Jerusalem. Well, since the main function of chapter 14 of 2 Samuel is to show that David's poor choice to show mercy and allow this incorrigible Absalom to return to the kingdom was mostly due to Yoav's now transparent scheming and to set the scene about how Absalom had planned for years to overthrow his father. Verse 25 now turns our attention to Absalom's violent and narcissistic nature. And we find that the main attribute that attracted the masses to Absalom, and the one that he used most to his advantage, was his outward appearance. It's interesting that apparently beauty was a genetic characteristic of those children and grandchildren of David's wife, Maka, that was Absalom's mother. Absalom's self-love led him to allow his hair to grow long to the point that he only cut it once per year. And he only cut it then because, it says, it weighed him down. It was so thick and heavy. I perfectly understand that. <laughs> In fact, it was supposedly cut off annually. What was cut off annually weighed four or five pounds. I say supposedly because while no doubt his hair was very unusual, that's an almost impossibly huge amount of hair. Now, there's been some interesting commentary written about his hair. And some rabbis say that he grew his hair long because, like Samson, he was a Nazarite for life. However, there's absolutely no evidence of such a thing. And other rabbis rightly look at his character and rather obviously deduce that his lengthy hair was an act of sheer vanity. Now, what the scriptures say is that his hair weighed 200 shekels. Now, this might be a good time to explain that in biblical times, the shekel was not a unit of money, like a dollar, as it is today. A shekel was a measurement of weight, such as an ounce or a gram. And the reason is that the creation of coins as standard units of money didn't come until very late and was probably introduced to the Hebrews by the Greeks. So the medium of exchange was silver or gold, and thus a shekel indicated not a value, but an amount of weight. So a shekel of silver was not worth as much as a shekel of gold, just as an ounce of silver is less valuable than an ounce of gold. However, it's even more complicated because there was no Middle Eastern Bureau of Weights and Standards. Every king generally determined just what a shekel was in his own kingdom. In fact, within Israel, there was 
also the standard shekel for everyday use and the royal shekel for when dealing with matters involving the king and his court. And what a shekel amounted to changed substantially between David's time and Christ's time. That's why you're going to find so many different estimations in our Bibles of, say, what a talent is, another unit of weight in reality, or how much a thousand shekels is in modern money, so on. Well, we're told that Avshalom had three children, and he named one of his daughters after his sister, the sad rape victim, Tamar. And this Tamar also turned out to be very, a very beautiful girl. Well, after living for two years in Jerusalem, Absalom grew frustrated of still being on the outside. And since Joab had been successful in persuading David to allow Absalom's return, Absalom thought perhaps Joab could influence David to remove all the barriers and allow a full return to grace. But for some reason, Joab had become indifferent to Absalom. Perhaps figuring that he wouldn't be going to become the king after all. I mean, he could well have reckoned by now that it was going to be Bathsheba's son, Solomon. And there was no point in backing Absalom anymore. Well, anyway, Absalom summoned Joab to come to him. He did so on more than one occasion. But Joab just didn't show up. I mean, let's face it. Joab didn't want to be associated with a fellow that the king had put on the shelf, all right, and he, uh, whose future prospects were pretty bleak. Right? It, it, it could be seen as an overt attempt to prop up Absalom. That could cost Joab his job or maybe even his life. So Absalom had Joab's field of barley burned up to get his attention. It worked. Yoav confronted Absalom and Absalom made it clear that he was not satisfied with this current arrangement and he demanded to get an audience with his father saying, if I'm guilty of anything, he can kill me. Means that Absalom would explain to his father that killing Amnon was justifiable and that he is certain that David will see it this way. But if he doesn't, then he'll accept being executed. Well, there's just about zero chance of that. And he knew it. Now, remembering that Joab was David's chief military commander and second command over all Israel, it would be nearly unthinkable that David would refuse a direct request by Joab for pretty much anything. So David allows Avshalom to come to him. Avshalom shows proper humility, prostrates himself before his father, whereupon David kisses him. Now do not think that this was a kiss of affection, whereby a father has a change of heart. The rabbis point out that in the scriptures, the Hebrew letter Lamed is used as a prefix to Avshalom's name in this instance, which indicates that this was merely a typical kiss of courtesy, as was customary in the Middle East to this day. It did serve to release Absalom from something akin to house arrest, but by no means was a relationship restored. 
But for Absalom, it was all he needed to set the stage for treachery that would change David's life forever. Well, despite everything that had gone on, despite all the human decisions that had led up to this point, God's providence was squarely in control of all that would lead up to Absalom's rebellion. Just as David was promised in such an ominous way back in chapter 12. Because in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 10 and 11, it says this, Now therefore, the sword will never leave your house, because you have shown contempt for me, and you've taken the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, as your own wife. So here is what Adonai says, I will generate evil against you out of your own household. Okay, let's move on to chapter 15. Chapter 15. It's a long one. But we're going to read it all. Sometime later, Absalom prepared himself a chariot and horses with 50 men to run ahead of him. He'd get up early and stand by the road leading to the city gate. And if someone had a case that was to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and ask, What city are you from? And he'd answer, Your servant is from the such and such tribe in Israel. And Absalom would say to him, Look, your cause is good and just, but the king hasn't deputized anyone to hear your case. And then Absalom would continue now, If I were made judge in the land anyone with a suit or other cause could come to me and I'd see to it that he gets justice. Moreover, whenever a man came close to prostrate himself before him, he'd put out his hand and he'd take hold of him and he'd kiss him. This is how Absalom behaved towards anyone in Israel who came to the king for judgment. And in this way, Absalom stole the hearts of the people of Israel. Well, at the end of 40 years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go to Hebron and fulfill the vow I made to Adonai. Your servant made a vow while I was staying in Gesher in Aram, to the effect that if Adonai would bring me back to Jerusalem, then I would serve Adonai. And the king said to him, Go in peace. So he set out and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent spies through all the tribes of Israel to say, the moment you hear the sound of the shofar, then start proclaiming, Avshalom is king in Hebron. With Avshalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who had been invited. They went innocently, knowing nothing about this game. Avshalom sent for Ahitophel, the Giloni, David's counselor, to come from his town Gilo and be with him while offering the sacrifices. The conspiracy grew strong because the number of people favoring Absalom kept increasing. A messenger came to David saying, The men of Israel have aligned themselves with Absalom. And David said to all his servants with him in Jerusalem, Get up! We must flee! Otherwise none of us will escape from Absalom. Hurry! Leave! Or he will soon overtake us, attack us, put the city to the sword. The king's servant said to the king, Here! Your servants are ready to do whatever the Lord the king decides. So the king set out and all his household after him. The king left ten women who were concubines to care for the palace. 
The king set out with all the people after him, but they waited at the last house for all of his servants to pass by him in review. All the Cretian, the Politi, all the Gittim, 600 men who had accompanied him from Gath, passed in review from before the king. Then the king said to Ittai, the Gitti, You too, why are you going with us? Go back! Stay with your king, since you were both a foreigner and an exile from your own place. You arrived only yesterday. Why should I ask you to wander around with us? There's no telling where I may go. Return. Take your kinsmen back with you. Grace and truth be with you. But Ittai answered the king, As Adonai lives, as my lord the king lives, Wherever my lord the king may be, whether for death or for life, your servant will be there too. Go, move along, said David to Ittai. And Ittai the Gitti moved on, accompanied by all his men and the little ones with him. The whole country wept and wailed as all the people left. When the king crossed the Wadi Kidron, all the people crossed too, heading towards the desert road. Sadok also came, accompanied by all the Levites bearing the Ark for the Covenant of God. They set the Ark of God down. But Aviatar went up until all the people had finished leaving the city. And the king said to Sadok, Carry the Ark of God back into the city. Because if I find favor in Adonai's sight, he will bring me back and show me both it and the place where it is kept. But if he says, I am displeased with you, Then, here I am. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. The king then said to Sadok, the priest, Do you see? Return to the city in peace, your two sons with you. Ahimaatz, your own son, and Jonathan, the son of Evitar. I will wait in the desert plains until a message with new information comes from you. So Zadok and Eviatar carried the Ark of God back into Jerusalem and stayed there. Now David continued up the road to the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, head covered, barefoot. And all the people with him had their heads covered and wept as they went up. And one of them told David, Achitophel is among the conspirators with Avshalom. And David said, Adonai, please turn Akitophel's advice into foolishness. And when David reached the top of the ascent where it was customary to worship God, Hushai the Archie came to meet him with his tunic torn, earth on his head. And David said to him, If you go with me, you'll just become a burden to me. But if you go back to the city and tell Avshalom, King, I'll be your servant, just as I was your father's servant in the past, so I'll now be your servant. Then you'll be able to frustrate Akitophel's advice for me. You have Zadok and Eviatar, the priests there with you. So whatever you hear from the king's house, you tell to Zadok and Eviatar, the priests, and their two sons, Akimahatz, the son of Zadok, and Jonathan, the son of Eviatar, are there with them. And through them, send me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city when Avshalom was about to enter Jerusalem. You know, and what must simultaneously be one of the most scurrilous and, and saddest tales in all of Scripture, the next four chapters go into unusual detail 
about Absalom's rebellion against his father, the king. And as God's curse of chapter 12 emphatically ensured, it involved killing, sexual immorality, and deception within David's closest family on a grand scale. And all of it as a proportional, measure-for-measure consequence of David's debacle with Bathsheba. Many psalms were written by David during this disastrous period in his life. And time permitting, we're going to look at some of them over the next few weeks because they fill in a lot of blanks about the mood of the times, about David's mindset. And it provides the all-important context for studying the psalms themselves. See, we must never take psalms to be some kind of a series of generic prayers that we read like a book. Rather, each psalm can be identified to a certain set of circumstances. And so that is how we must understand them or risk creating false understandings and doctrines. And believe me, that's exactly what's occurred over the centuries within the institutional church structure. Here is another point of reference to consider. I I think that as much as we should always look at David as a type of Messiah, however imperfect, then in this case we should also see Avshalom as a type of anti-Messiah, anti-Christ. Now, I don't want to overplay that aspect of the story or to give him that official label. But on the other hand, I think that there is a pattern here that is quite legitimate to apply to the coming Antichrist of the end times. We do have a battle between the illegitimate prince who is convinced he can overcome the chosen and anointed king, that he can thwart God's will, and thus he can rule over God's kingdom, one that he hopes to make his own. We also find the similarity that there were those who were at one time dedicated to their king, the Messiah-like figure of David, but their hearts grew dissatisfied. And suddenly, a man from the king's family tries to overcome him and take control of the kingdom. Now, most of Israel, rebels, will follow the illegitimate Avshalom and only a remnant will stay loyal to King David. In fact, we're going to see several instances of citizens boldly standing with David, knowing that such a stand is putting them and their families in great danger. Under the premise that God is, rather that David is God's choice to rule. And Avshalom is an illegal and wicked usurper. And whatever happens to them personally, whatever comes, it is better to stand with God and His anointed. 
The thing that is made clear in these next chapters is that the majority of Israel saw Absalom as a rational choice because he was of the proper lineage at least on one side of his family, David's side. And it's well understood that the king of Israel was to be of the tribe of Judah, a Jew. Further, Absalom went far out of his way to make it seem as though he was so loving and caring for the people that he had only their best interests at heart. That he was there to solve their problems. To give them what they wanted in a way that the current king just could not or would not. All this smacks of the various descriptions of the future Antichrist who will take advantage of our human evil inclinations and our naivete and convince many of the Judeo-Christian world and the secular world that He is the Messiah. But at the risk of drawing the ire of some, especially our Jewish members, Let me also point out the pattern present in our story of the anti-king being of the same family as the anointed king. The Bible implies that for some reason, I need for you to follow closely with me here now, the future anti-Christ is going to be accepted by many Jews, many Christians, as the legitimate Messiah, as prophesied in the Bible. But what Jew, no matter how secular or traditional they might be, would accept anyone but another Jew as their Messiah? Even a goodly portion of the Gentile church still acknowledges the indisputable biblical fact that Messiah Yeshua was a Jew. Thus he's going to return as a Jew. So if it's reasonable, as I maintain, to view some elements of the relationship between David and Avshalom as a pattern for the Christ-Antichrist in time scenario, then could it be that the Antichrist is going to have a Jewish heritage? Let me ask that in the opposite way. How could any Jew or Christian expect that the appearance or reappearance of Messiah be as a Gentile? Therefore, those who will accept the Antichrist as the Messiah, as God will certainly be expecting a Jewish person. Now don't think that I'm picturing some orthodox rabbi or some overtly religious person. Rather, I'm thinking in terms of a man who has hidden his Jewishness or at least not made it an issue until the proper moment. And we have several world leaders who surprisingly only recently divulged their Jewish heritage. And two of them especially have shown themselves to be decidedly anti-Israel and no friend of the Jewish people. President Sarkozy of France and Senator John Kerry of the USA. 
Now, by no means am I suggesting they are antichrists. I'm just saying that a politician could achieve great power by first hiding their Jewish heritage and then later using it for a political purpose if it was to their advantage to do that. Verse 1 says that some unspecified time after David accepted, at least tacitly, Absalom back into the fold, Absalom began in earnest to execute his plan of overthrowing the government. No doubt he had been organizing, winning key loyalties, making promises, and generally working towards his goal of overthrow ever since his arrival back into Jerusalem. On the surface, it seems incomprehensible that the nation of God could turn against its greatest king, the Lion of Judah, King David. But people are fickle. And a charismatic personality coming along at just the right moment with the right message has swayed the masses towards himself on numerous occasions throughout history. History also shows that often a formerly great leader rests on his laurels and he turns passive. And that is what opens the door for takeover. After 20 years in power, David seems to have distanced himself from the common folk, delegated duties to underlings that ought to rest upon him, and generally conducted himself poorly and with an aloof attitude that turned people away from him. The Bathsheba affair had rocked Israel and no doubt substantially reduced the people's trust and admiration of their leader. We'll continue on with chapter 15 next next week.